Hello. Hi. I'm Shannon. I'm Emma. <laughs> and my husband will not stop texting me. <laughs> what do you want, Nick? Nick. Ooh, chicken fried rice tonight. Yes. All right, brag. Also, yes, I do have time to swing into Total Wine. <laughs> Priorities. I know you're a bartender, Nick. <laughs> but sure. He's a very, actually, he's a very good bartender. I believe you. I'm still waiting for some. I love those TikToks where they're like a bachelorette party or just like friends hanging out and they all like make a cocktail inspired by something yes. in the group. Honestly, if we gave Nick a, like, list of, oh no, sorry, Shannon has an idea. <laughs> oh, I just, I know what I would name the cocktail that's after you. The Muppet. <laughs> I don't know what would be in it. My brain is like, snazzleberries. And I'm like, that's not real. Snozberries. <laughs> oh. Anyway. Oh, all right, well, Nick, get on it, babe. Yeah, you don't have enough going on. Nope. All right, Emma. Well, welcome to this podcast doesn't exist. Oh, yeah, we didn't get to say that because Nick texted, texted Emma. Um, oh, yeah, welcome. Um, so right at the top, let's get the housekeeping out of the way because I've got so much to say and I don't want to talk about it later. So you can find our bingo card at our Instagram at this podcast doesn't exist. Go to our link in bio, download the bingo card, play along, and then... Whether you play the bingo or if you're just listening in your real life, I would love to see where slash when people listen to us. So, like, Ooh. if you are doing your laundry, snap a little picture and tag us, and we can see where people are listening, both, like, in their homes, in the world. Is there, like, a landmark you pass on the way to work? You're like, the Capitol building. I guess doesn't exist. I don't know. I just am curious. Of when people listen. We want to see where y'all are at. Yeah. And if you have thoughts, feelings, or opinions about anything we say or anything you would like us to say or anything we have said, you can email us at thispodcastdoesn'texist at gmail.com. Dino orders, please. <laughs> Currently, Ruth is the only one, so they are reigning king, so... <laughs> I love that. That's literally from episode eight. I don't care. I'm genuinely interested because but what I, I want is to have a party of diner food when all of this is done and over with. I just want, I want pancakes over here. I want hot dogs over here. I want a whole row of milkshakes and we're just gonna have a, this sounds like a dream I had. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm picturing when you said a whole row of milkshakes? Is that we have like a little bowl, but instead of butter mints, it's just lactates <laughs> in a little bowl. Because <laughs> that that is the perfect tell addition me, to any party. Tell me you're in your mid twenties or later without telling me you're in your mid twenties or later. Here, I think I have lactate, Advil, and Pepto Bismol in my purse. <laughs> Would you like a tums? I got you. Um, right. Yes. So all of those things. All those things. Take care of them. Do your homework. Talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. It's great. And next up on my little note, my little note system. I can't talk. What's happening? I'm too excited. It's okay. I, this is like me during the Atlantis episode when I literally stopped and went, I think I'm nervous. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm always nervous. That's the thing. And then I, that's my secret cap. I'm always nervous. (laughs) Well, because I do the thing where I'm a a perfectionist, so I procrastinate, 
But then I get into the notes after procrastinating and then I just feel anxious that I'm not going to be done in time. And then I get like the podcast sweats. sweats. (laughs) Just like nervous. Anyway, so my little next thing on my notes, it says story time. Uh, Because guys, I academically stood Emma up this week. (laughs) I was at work on Sunday morning. It is now Tuesday. And Emma texted me, very friendly, like we do. Uh, And she's like, great, so I'll be over to yours at like 5.36 tonight. Does that work? And I was like, um, (laughs) you're welcome to come hang out with me, but if we're trying to record a podcast, I must inform you, I have literally nothing done. (laughs) Which, at at which point, I went, oh, that's okay. I don't want to research right now anyway. <laughs> Just like, I think in passing we had been like, oh, maybe we'll do it this time. But like, if it's not on the Google calendar for me, it doesn't exist. I completely forgot to make a, like, every single time, this is episode 27, y'all. Every single time that we have made up an appointment with each other to record it has gone into the google cal and this was the one time that it didn't because it was a quick drive-by where i went are you free sunday yeah great see you then and we never Here's discussed it again boxes. bye <laughs> but anyway we got through it you had more time to do your research i did and i had some time to do it honestly though man I'm so, Shannon has 10 pages of notes. It's size 14 font though cuz I'm blind, but still, but there are no photos. If you don't if you don't like long episodes, maybe just take this one in chunks. Yeah. Go on multiple long walks. I, exactly. Do that. All right. So, here we are. Like I yeah, I literally said, so here we are. <laughs> Shannon wrote herself a script. I always do. We both got to have more time for our research and not gonna lie, Emma, it's quite a lot. Dot, dot, dot. One might even call it a mountain of research. I know what it is! <laughs> I knew it. I'm away. On the way here, I went, you know what? That girl's gonna do Everest. I don't know if it's all of Everest. I don't know if it's one specific thing. But I don't care. I know it's happening. Because when you texted me last night and you were like, yeah, I'm doing research when it was like your notes and the TV on, I was like, she going through National Geographic. (laughs) I did. And um, the thing is, I had already seen that documentary once, but I hadn't been taking notes the first time that I was recording. And then, do you want to, I, after we record, I need to take this photo, but Emma, uh, we have two microphones now because we're very profesh uh, here in the studio. Mine is on a pile of books about the Titanic. Um, Could you tell me what yours is on top of? Uh, John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, Sir Edmund Hillary's View from the Summit, and Everest alone at the summit, as well as the Atlas of Vanishing Places. (laughs) Great. And then I've been hiding these. I have these two books. Yes. Um, wait, one of these. Okay, this one I'm going to read from later. This one you're going to hang on to. Oh. I haven't pulled photos, you guys. Um, but Emma will need a reference image in a little bit. 
Um, and that doesn't show you the three books that are in my TBR pile in my room that are about Mount Everest, but weren't helpful for this specific research. But I definitely saw them. That's fine. They're there. But I'm just, but the thing is, I'm I'm saying this is not a joke, y'all. This is true. But the fact that, like, I wasn't worried about hiding those books because I was like, well, that's not a giveaway because I always want to read a book about Mount Everest. (laughs) All right. So, also, I'm glad that I got in um, that pun about a mountain of research. I'm, I, I'm very proud of you, too. Thank, thank you. I had it while watching the documentary and, like, wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. <laughs> okay. And then I say, caveat. Mm. If you're new here, please know that I, Shannon McCarthy, your co-host. And intellectual. And intellectual. I am fascinated by Mount Everest. There are literally three books about it on my current TBR pile, and that doesn't include the books I've accumulated over the years here in the podcast studio. I have done my best to focus this research on a very specific narrative, rather than this turning into interesting facts about Everest with Shannon for two hours. Um, that could definitely happen. It it's could, not today. <laughs> if we ever have a Patreon, that'll be Guys. a bonus episode. Uh So please forgive me if I skim any details. This is both to Emma and to you, the listener. If I skim any details about Mount Everest, because I assume that everyone already knows them, I forget everyone's not a weirdo like me. You're not a weirdo. I just have a very specific niche interest. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to learn today, folks. (laughs) You're going to learn today. So, Emma. Yes? Rather than buckling in, I would recommend possibly clipping into the fixed line. Yes, ma'am. In case a strong breeze comes by and blows you off the mountain. Because that would definitely happen. When I was walking Penny the other day, it was really windy. Oh, no. And I didn't have proper footing. I'm already an unbalanced person anyway, in many ways. (laughs) But I... I went to take a step, and the wind literally gusted through, and Penny is, like, you know, trotting along. Meanwhile, I'm wavering, like, fully wavering, like, a flag in the wind. It was bad. I will clip in. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Alrighty. The record books state that the first explorers to conquer Mount Everest were Edmund Hillary of New Zealand, and Tenzing Norgay, a Nepalese Sherpa, on May 29th, 1953. But, is it possible that history could someday prove otherwise? On June 8th, 1924, renowned mountaineer George Mallory and his gifted younger teammate, Andrew, nicknamed Sandy Irvin, were last spotted 800 vertical feet from the summit of Mount Everest, making good time and, quote, moving with alacrity toward their goal. They were never seen again. (laughs) So, just a little bit of general information about Mount Everest for you. To get you all up to my speed, uh, in case you haven't heard, Mount Everest is the highest mountain peak in the world. It is part of the Himalayan mountain range. Its elevation, parentheses, snow height, oh, of, and then we're going to get very specific, 8,848.86 meters, or 
31.7 feet, was most recently established in 2020 by the Nepali and Chinese authorities. So they remeasured Mount Everest, and it's a little bit higher than previously recorded, I believe. That's so cool! I found a TikTok about it last night, because while I was doing my research, but then feeling stressed about my research, I was like, well, I'll TikTok about the research. So it's productive procrastination. So the Tibetan name for the mountain is Chol, mm-mm-mm, I should know this. I was like, ooh, it sounds so musical. <laughs> I've listened to enough audiobooks to know, but it's multiple syllables. So, uh, we out here doing our best. Chomolungma. There we go. Ooh, and it means, it means mother goddess of the world. And so the mountains, by the native people, are thought to be living beings. Uh, And therefore... (gasps) Like in Moana? Yeah, similar, yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, So because of this, a puja ceremony is performed before teams depart from Everest Base Camp, asking for permission to climb the mountain. This usually involves seeking the blessing of a Buddhist lama and placing offerings on a stone altar. And Sherpas are, it's the name for the native people. They Mm -hmm. were born and raised and have acclimatized um, in this higher altitude region. And that makes them very great uh, climbing companions because they, unlike us flimsy white people, can deal with the lack of oxygen in the air because that's just, their bodies have adapted that way. Yeah. Um, but if ever there's a case where a puja ceremony can't take place, the Sherpas are very nervous about it. They're like, bad luck. Not going to do this without the permission. Bad luck. Like well, we usually it's... say here, you might not believe in it, but what's the harm? Yeah, what's the harm? And I won't get into it, but there's a whole lot of um, discourse about whether people should even be climbing Mount Everest, if it's even worthwhile anymore because it's basically a tourist attraction and people who are not qualified or trained or experienced to be on this mountain can basically be like shuttled up. And in 2019, it made the news that there was kind of this conga line on top of Everest because people were just standing in line waiting to go because there were too many people on the mountain. But then it's like, they're bringing in money to the local economy, so it's a lot. And then there's this whole other conversation in regards to trash, and recent years the expeditions have been a lot better. It's kind of, a lot more people are following leave no trace practices, but it's a lot, and it's not about our specific story, so we won't get into it, but if you're interested, you can find some information, I'm sure. Um, so nowadays it takes about two weeks to travel to Everest Base Camp and it's a process of acclimatizing so you can't go up too fast because your body will freak out because there's not enough oxygen in the air and you can get very very sick and die it's like Um, going up to the surface from scuba diving too fast yes Um, so you have to take your time but still two weeks it's a lot of like jeep And, like, maybe some plane travel um, or, like, helicopter travel. But back in the day, the climbers that we're talking about, they were hiking all the way from Darjeeling 
in what was at the time referred to as British India, which is a 300 mile or 480 kilometer march to Everest. Whoa. So a lot of yaks were involved to carry (laughs) things. Um, But that means that they had a long time to acclimatize. Now that's a conga line. (laughs) Oh. Um, Alrighty. And again, in case you didn't know, um, climbing Mount Everest or any very tall mountain uh, is very physiologically demanding. Uh, The summit of Everest has one-third the amount of oxygen in the air as there is at sea level. That's insane. Yeah. And base camp, you think, okay, the bottom of the mountain. Yeah. Much better. Still has only half the amount of oxygen. Oh my gosh. Hence the need for acclimatization. Okay, yeah. And once you reach what is referred to as the death zone, which is anywhere above 8,000 meters or... 26,000 feet, your body is actively deteriorating, like dying. Your body's dying little by little. Uh, You don't have appetite or thirst. Like you just don't have that because your body's so focused on just being alive and moving. But your body needs food and water um, in order to generate heat. All the layers in the world can't help you because they only insulate you. They don't produce heat. In order to produce heat, you have to be burning calories. So, that's a challenge. You, so, you know how you cry during my episodes? Yeah. This is my moment. All right. I'm so close to crying. <laughs> um. This real world stuff terrifies me. I can deal with just the supernatural. About, just think about some ghosts okay. or something. Okay. Um, think about the Yeti. He's on my socks right now. Uh, Very appropriate. Ba, ba, ba. Yeah, but you have to. You also have to consume a lot of water to avoid dehydration because the air is just so dry up there as well. Yeah. Um, and it takes a lot to even get water to drink, let alone, like, make food, because it takes so long for snow to melt, because your stove is burning, you yes. know, there's not oxygen to, to help, help your fire. Yeah. The UV radiation is also very intense up that high in the atmosphere, especially when it's magnified by reflections sent up by all of the snow, snow. and ice around yeah. you. Um, so if you've ever been driving in your car right after it's snowed, and you feel like, oh, God, I, sh- I need my sunglasses think that but it's everywhere all around you yeah and you don't get to go inside and then uh in the next everest which is a book that was just released in the last two weeks i think um (laughs) have you read it already i'm halfway through the audiobook (laughs) and there was a damaged copy at the bookstore so i got to bring it home yay Um, exciting it's really beat up, but the book is about the 2015 earthquake in Nepal slash on Mount Everest, so I feel like it kind of goes with the aesthetic. Okay, yeah. um, But in that book, author Jim Davis, he relays the anecdote of a fellow climber talking about UV, UV re- radiation. He relays the anecdote of a fellow climber who sunburnt the roof of his mouth <gasps> by panting open-mouthed for too long at high altitude. So you're struggling to breathe. So he was breathing through his mouth and the the UVs bounced off the snow and he sunburnt the roof of his mouth. <laughs> oh my gosh. Emma's just gaping at me. I'm like, like a fish like over a fish. here. I can't. 
contain myself. Um, oh, Emma, you're not gonna like this next oh, part. No. Do you need? Do you need to scream? Let me know if you need to scream. I, I will let you know. Okay, you do have a pillow over there, so. That's true, I do. Thank you. Let me know if you need a blankie to hide under. We, we We come prepared here at the studio. Yes, we do. So, in a lot, in basically every book that I've ever consumed about Mount Everest, this adage in one wording or another kind of carries through. That if you are no longer able to move under your own power, you're not leaving the mountain. Um, And because of this, there are anywhere between 100 and 300 bodies on Mount Everest. That's a large margin. Well, the estimates for 300 are from some older sources, so... I see. I read an article and I think it was the New York Times that was talking about how in more recent years, I believe um, the Nepalese government was making a more active attempt to bring down bodies from the mountain, um, especially if they're not in the death zone. Um, but many of those bodies are in the death zone. You know, it's kind of in the name. Um, but the reason why there are so many is that the cost and the safety of retrieving the fallen is ultimately too high in most cases. A body that is frozen solid can be anywhere from 200 to 300 pounds. Ah. And they are in a very uh, odd shape most of the time, which makes them a higher wind risk. Uh, so it, they're... The way one person put it was, what is the point of going up to retrieve one body, if you're like one corpse, if you're going to leave two more? Because people would not encounter good conditions in trying to retrieve those people. Also, the air is so thin up there that you can't, helicopters can only really go maybe up to camp two. It's been done in the past, but it's very tricky and it's a very short weather window. Um, even getting to base camp by helicopter can be challenging sometimes. So for the most part, the bodies stay where they have fallen. Um, and some of them, uh, because they are still there, become sort of markers for future climbers, uh, such as Green Boots, who's thought to be an Indian climber who perished in a small cave in 1996. Um, who's so named because his climbing boots are neon green. But also in more recent years, more attempts have been made to kind of honor the dead as much as possible. So kind of taking them as far off the trail as as they can and either covering them with tarps or like rocks so that people, you know. They're still still technically markers maybe, but like not... Yeah, but like you're not gonna like take a picture of somebody or yeah or whatever. Um, so with all that said, yeah, why go through all of this to climb a mountain, Emma? Why? Why risk life, limb, time, and toes to reach the summit? Time and toes. Thank you. On a U.S. press tour in 1923. George Mallory, when posed the same question, told reporters, quote, Because it's there. Everest is the highest mountain in the world, and no man has reached its summit. 
Its existence is a challenge. The answer is instinctive, a part, I suppose, of man's desire to conquer the universe. And from one of the books I previously <laughs> listened to, um, this quote gets used a lot. Like, it sounds very serious. I just read it very, like, formally and seriously. It gets brought up in a lot of scientific endeavors. You know, why go to the moon? Why go to the bottom of the ocean? Yeah. Because it's there. But actually, <laughs> the the report, the book kind of shared that his response was more kind of joking. Like, why, why do you want to climb out of Well, because it's there. <laughs> like, why not? Um, which I just love. And... I didn't really get into the background of these climbers because otherwise we would be here for a really, really long time. Um, but they're all British climbers that I'm going to be talking about in this expedition. So just keep in mind that, I guess, when you're picturing them. Like cheeky British Cheeky climb. little Brits. Yeah, because oh, it's there. <laughs> all right, so the next section I have titled The Prequels. <laughs> uh, so... The British snowboards. <laughs> the British launched expeditions to Everest in 1921 and 1922. Uh, at the time, Nepal was closed to foreigners, so any approach had to be from the north through Tibet. A feasible route was discovered from the east up the Karta Glacier and then crossing the Lakpala Pass northeast of Everest. It was then necessary to descend the East Rungbuk Glacier before climbing again to Everest's North Coal. Uh, the northern approach to the mountain was discovered by George Mallory and Guy Bullock on the initial 1921 British Reconnaissance Expedition, which is the most British thing I've heard. <laughs> is the longest name. Um... It was an exploratory expedition, so they were not equipped to really make an attempt to climb Mount Everest. Um, but at that point, they hadn't they hadn't seen it. They didn't even know if it was climbable. Yeah, they were kind of trying to just figure it all out. So on that expedition, with Mallory leading and thus becoming the first European to set foot on Everest's flanks, they climbed the North Pole to an altitude of seven thousand five meters. 22,982 feet. Thank you for the metric switch. I I feel like we need to. I feel like the majority of our audience is American, but... There's that one cheeky Brit. <laughs> Indeed. Hi, Tom. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the part. I told him he's going to get shouted out in this episode. Aww. But we haven't even gotten to that part yet. Sorry, I always pre... You always you always have it planned out, and I always jump well, this in one, early. I, not necessarily planned, but you'll see. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's relevant, I think. Um, but did I write it in my notes? I guess we'll find out. Maybe you'll just be left wondering this whole time. <laughs> when were you going to... When were you going to talk about me? Okay, so in 1922, the British returned. Uh, George Finch climbed using oxygen for the first time. He ascended at a remarkable speed, 290 meters, 951 feet per hour. Wow. And, and reached an altitude of 8,320 meters, 27,300 feet. Uh, the first human reported to climb higher than 8,000 meters. Dang. Mallory and Colonel Felix Norton made a second unsuccessful attempt uh, to climb further. 
Mallory was faulted for leading a group down from the North Coal, which got which got caught in an avalanche. Mallory was pulled down, but he survived. But seven native porters were killed Aww. in that accident. So now this brings us to the 1924 expedition. We have Andrew Sandy Irvin as a new addition to the team, and he was given two terms leave of absence from Merton College in Oxford. Aww. He was 16 years younger than George Mallory himself and younger than the average age of the party by a very large margin. I think nowadays people consider mountaineering to be a young man's sport uh, or young person's sport with some exceptions you know I feel like people are trying to make records I saw a trailer for a documentary that came out a couple years ago where this guy he's like 68 and I think he was trying maybe he was trying to be the oldest American man or if not that he definitely was trying to be the first great-grandfather to summit Everest and I was like oh. okay we're getting very specific yeah you know but I guess if you are captivated by that adventure the idea of being in part of history is exciting uh, especially given what I was saying earlier about kind of it being a tourist yeah the adventure has kind of been taken out of it um the Nat Geo documentary that I was watching, which I'll talk about more later, uh, the main climber on that, he said that he had never been interested in climbing Everest because there isn't a challenge, but kind of this lens of mystery allowed him to approach the, the mountain as a worthwhile endeavor, mm -hmm. which I was like, I think that's a little snooty of you, but also I see what you're saying because... You know, people who are not really qualified are able to do it with the help of primarily indigenous people. Like, yeah, without Sherpas, these 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 bozos people would, would not, be dead. Yeah, they well they would yeah they wouldn't make it high enough to even make it into the death zone. But still, you can die at base camp or anywhere in between, really. Um, but we won't get into it because Emma will cry. Yeah. Um. Ba -ba -ba. Okay, so Sandy Irvin. He was a talented engineer, um, but he hadn't really climbed much at high altitudes before, um, but he was still considered an asset to the team. So George Mallory and Sandy Irvin, their attempt was the third summit push of this 1924 expedition. Again, I'm not going to get into the previous two. You can learn all about it online. Uh, In all of the various books that Shannon has scattered around her house. Yes, all of the books, uh, the Mother Source Wikipedia, which always helps me clarify my information because I get so lost in the weeds sometimes. You get really excited about that. Then I'm details. like, how do I even organize all this? I don't know. Um, but it helps just put things in a chronological order, which we appreciate. So theirs was the third summit attempt. Uh, and then I have a little quote from one of my sources. Uh, Mallory went without supplemental oxygen on his first two Everest attempts, so the first two expeditions, despite its use by other climbers in 1922. He wished to accomplish the feat on his own to preserve the sanctity of the adventure. This anticipated the modern climbers like Reinhold Messner, who believe the only fair means of ascent of a mountain is one where no supplemental oxygen is used. Which I guess I can understand 
if you're a capable climber and you yeah. want to feel like you, if the whole point is to like conquer the world or to to look God or the universe in the eye and and survive, you want to feel like you met the mountain at your best, you know, by like by of yourself. your own power or whatever. Yeah. I get that, but also I'm like, do you want to die? I feel like no. I hope the answer's no. Right? I feel like they have to make you do some psychological evaluations before you go on a climb. And when you come back, like... Well, I hope so, yeah. What what happens if this was your, like, life's goal or life's work and you reach the summit and you're like, I've finally done it, and you get back down to base camp and you're like, well, what do I do now? Oh, I'm sure that happens. Like, post-Everest depression. Right. I'm, I bet that happens. Or if you don't make it. Oh, yeah, and if you, like, you get back. to, like, base base two or something, and then you're like, I yeah. can't do it. Well, the, the book that I'm reading right now about the earthquakes in 2015, they only made it to, I think, Camp 2. Maybe? Yeah. I don't know. They No, they made it to Camp 1. Um, and then the earthquake happened, and they couldn't keep climbing. Yeah. But the guy, the author, he's talking about, he's like, I can't believe... After 30 years of preparing, then my summit, like, my Mount Everest journey was over nine hours after I left base camp. Like, oh. But I'm halfway through. I think he goes back to climate again. But that's still, but, <laughs> but that feeling of, like, if this is something that is such an, like, it, you feel is such an accomplishment, with or without supplemental help, like, with oxygen or whatever, mm-hmm. but, like, if this is such an accomplishment, I can't imagine... The like, I mean, obviously there's got to be fear when you're, when you're getting up there of like, am I going to make it? I hope so. But also I feel like that's why you need to take a psycho psychological evaluation because at this point, nobody climbs Everest solo. Like you go with a trip or with a country sponsored team. Yeah. Um, so if I'm leading that team, I want to know that you... Are going to listen to me. Yeah. When I tell you, I don't care that the summit is 300 vertical feet. We have to turn around by this time or we're going to hit bad weather or we're going to run out of oxygen. Um, I know I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but there's a movie called Everest. It's about, it's a dramatization of the 1996 Everest disaster, which I'm not going to get into because that's not the topic. But that kind of plays out. Both what you're saying about if people didn't make it and then they come back a second attempt or, you know, multiple attempts. Um, there's a character that's like, please, 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 please. And then the leader, like, lets them push the timeline. And I'm not things saying happen. that's why bad things it's happen. like the perfect storm. But it didn't help. Um, <sighs> highly recommend. Also, if anybody finds that movie on DVD at Goodwill, please buy it for me. I could just buy it myself, but I like looking for it. Yeah. It's a fun time. All right. But back to our 1924 climbing team. On June 7th, their teammate and the expedition photographer, John Knoll, received the following message from George Mallory via a porter who was coming back down. Dear Knoll, we'll probably start early tomorrow, parentheses, 8th. To have clear weather, 
it won't be too early to start looking out for us either crossing the rock band under the pyramid or going up skyline at 8 p.m. Yours ever, G. Mallory. And it's kind of understood that he meant 8 a.m. And he, you know, he wrote the wrong thing. (laughs) Um, Interesting. You're high up enough that your brain is not necessarily working. You're high up enough that you might be high. (laughs) Yeah. Also on the 7th, geologist Noel O'Dell traveled up to Camp 5 to act in support of the climbing pair. On June 8th, summit bid day, there were ideal weather conditions, almost no snow, clear weather, relatively still winds. Mallory and Irvin likely left after daybreak, which that high up on the mountain was approximately between 5 and 5.30 a.m. Dawn starts to break around 4 a.m. on Mount Everest. Jeez. Um, But it's likely that they left after daybreak because they left behind all of their lighting gear. So their their torches, their flashlights. Um, Their oxygen apparatus weighed anywhere between 20 to 28 pounds, depending how many cylinders of oxygen they took with them. So every ounce at that point counted. And I guess if you're leaving at 5 in the morning... You assume you're going to be back before it gets dark. So you're like, we don't need to bring these. They didn't leave any notes in their journals or anything about it. So that's kind of speculation. On the morning of June 8th, Odell awoke at 6 a.m. reporting that the night was largely free of wind and that he slept well. Uh, He also wrote that he had basically a chilly dinner and breakfast because... As, they, as Mallory and Irving were packing up to leave Camp 5 and go up to Camp 6, which was the final camp, they accidentally knocked their stove over and it, like, slid down a, a hill. So he didn't have uh, any way to melt Aww. water or heat food. So he had some provisions with him, but he was severely dehydrated because he didn't have access to water. Are you not able to just, like, put snow in your mouth? You could, but that won't really help with the keeping you warm thing. Oh, that's fair. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, guys, just snow eat cones. the snow. Yeah. So around 8 a.m., Odell started an ascent up to Camp 6 to make geological studies and to support Mallory and Irvin. The mountain was swept by mists, so he could not see the northeast ridge clearly, along which Mallory and Irvin intended to climb. At 7,900 meters, 26,000 feet, he climbed over a small outcropping. At 12.50 p.m., the mists suddenly cleared, and Odell noted in his diary, saw M and I on the ridge, nearing base of final pyramid. And there had long been debates about whether or not the pair was running behind schedule or not because remember in his note he had let the photography team a little further down the the mountain know that they would be on the ridge around eight but odell saw them at 12:50, and this is made even more complex by differing accounts or interpretations of odell's sighting so he originally claimed that the sighting had occurred on the second step Emma, you can open the book if you'd like to this, the, the marked page. Oh, there you go. 
There's a little diagram. I'll have a diagram on the Instagram, you guys. But so he originally said that he saw them on the second step, but he faced critiques from all sides. Uh, so naysayers claimed that Mallory and Irvin could not have topped the second step because it was too difficult. Friends of them claimed that with, quote, Mallory being Mallory, the pair would have charged to the summit no matter what. So even if they were running behind schedule, if they had encountered trouble, this was Mallory's third trip to Everest, and he was going to do the thing. God bless his wife. That's all I have to say. Right. <laughs> um, again, if you would like to read more, you can. It wasn't always happy. It could be a little tense. Um, Odell, in the face of all this, eventually shifted his account that he cited them on or near the first step instead. He was like, oh, actually, I couldn't have seen this. However, when more modern scientists have gone back and climbers have gone back and viewed the landscape from his spot, his described topography, and mind you, he's a trained geologist, so he's probably pretty good at analyzing land masses and describing them correctly, clearly matches the third step. So all of this is kind of a mystery. A little bit later, I'll share some evidence that maybe supports but also confuses the timelines. But around 2 p.m., a snow squall hit Odell where he was at Camp 6, but he couldn't be sure that it would be affecting Mallory and Irvin higher up on the mountain. Weather is very unusual that high up. Sometimes fog will roll in. The fog is really just clouds. But, <laughs> but the top of... Sorry, my brain for a minute. I was like, do you mean that fog here is just clouds? Why no, Emma? Uh, I don't. Because <laughs> the top of Everest actually sticks up into the jet stream. Yeah. Which is wild. And if it you watch, crazy. like, time-lapse footage, it's, it's insane. It's, yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. I understand now that specifically on Everest, and I'm sure in other places that are very high up, yes, they are genuinely clouds. And I'm sure that fog has the components of cloud, um, but it is not a cloud. If you're a weatherman, please write in. Um, a weather person? Somebody. Somebody. Um... Right, so at that point, Odell, he kind of went out into the snow squall and, like, essentially yodeled and stuff to try and see <laughs> if his teammates, because he hadn't seen any sign of them yeah. since 12.50, and at that point it's around 2 o'clock, so he's thinking maybe they're on their way back down, maybe, because the tent was not in a super conspicuous location, it was kind of tucked away, so he's like, maybe I don't want them to, like, miss the tent, so I'll just see... But then he determined they can't really hear me. He went back and, like, he sat in their tent till the snow squall had cleared. And then he started heading back down the mountain. Because this was a tiny tent. And their oxygen apparatus were large. So there would not have been room for three of them in the tent. So he was like, okay, I was here. I tried to, like, bring them home. Um... I'm going to head back down so that when they, when they come, when back, they they come I won't be in the way. So multiple scenarios of timelines have been posited 
based on how many oxygen cylinders the men may have been carrying and how those would affect their turnaround times. And then I wrote, two in the weeds to get into on the pod, but DM us if you want to talk more. Because one of these books, I mean both of them, but one of them gets really into the math of if they're carrying this many oxygen, it shows four different photos of scenarios of, okay, this is where they changed oxygen. This is how far they could have gotten. This is where they would have been when, in, um, you know, when the sun set, all these things. But I, I tried to synthesize it and I was like, I can't, I, I gotta keep, I gotta keep going. So the following day, so all throughout this time, other than that sighting at 1250, there's no sign of the climbers. There's no, when they're, you, you know, the lower camps, they keep checking up on the mountain through their binoculars and their their cameras. I was like, their photography device. <laughs> um, and there was no, there weren't any torches. There were, I mean, they wouldn't have been building a fire. They had yeah. like little gas stoves sort of things. Um, but there was no sign. So they were like, oh, okay. Um, Odell. He travels up to Camp 5 the following day, and upon no sign from the climbers, um, proceeds up to Camp 6 once again on June 10th, so two days after their attempt. And then here's a quote from, uh, from Odell. This upper part of Everest must be indeed the remotest and least hospitable spot on Earth, but at no time more emphatically and impressively so than when a darkened atmosphere hides its features and a gale races over its cruel face. And how and when more cruel could it ever seem than when balking one's every step to find one's friends? Oh, this sounds like poetry. Yeah. Alas, he found no signs of Mallory or Irvin, even after searching up to a height of 28,000 feet. And so when he had gone the first time to Camp 6, he brought Mallory's compass that he had accidentally left at Camp 5. The compass was still in the tent. A tent pole had collapsed, so... It was obvious no one was there. No one had been back. He returned to Camp 6 and dragged their abandoned sleeping bags into the snow, forming the previously agreed-upon symbol, a black T in the snow, meaning... No trace can be found, given up hope, awaiting orders. The news was relayed to the lower camps via a similar sleeping bag symbol, this time a black cross. Norton, the expedition leader, replied with a symbol of his own, three blankets side by side in the snow. Abandon search, return as soon as possible with party. Which is all very sad. Yeah. But it's also so clever. Yeah. Because they yeah, they didn't have walkie-talkies. They didn't have radios. They couldn't do smoke Satellite signals. phones. No. And there's a photo that I'm going to, going to include um, on the Instagram from one of these books. But it shows you all the symbols that they had come up with of, like, you know, this all good, no help required, medical attention needed. Like, all these different variations. Like, they were clearly hoping. They were hoping so hard yeah uh however monsoon season was looming which made any searches inadvisable especially given the expedition's depleted resources and various injuries and ailments um 
you know, their expedition leader had been dealing with snow blindness from an earlier, his summit attempt. Uh, One of the other men on the expedition was dealing with some lung issues, is how I'll describe it. It's very gross, and I don't think Emma will like it. Thank you. I I appreciate you. (laughs) I won't do it. Um, Just remember this next time there's any creepy thing in a box. Okay? Okay. Remember this kindness. I will try. (laughs) Meanwhile, you're like, tick-tock, tick-tock, your time is running out. Your creepy things are coming. They are, and I have them planned. <laughs> sorry. No, just, you don't get I to really, say I'm sorry. I really want to do. You don't get to say I'm sorry. When it, no. I apologize. Mm-mm. No, ma'am. So, as the party retreated from the main Rungbuk Valley, they created a memorial cairn bearing the names of all 12 of those who had lost their lives throughout the three British expeditions. So 1921, 1922, and 1924. Ruth Mallory learned of her husband's assumed death on June 19th, just days before the news broke via the press on June 21st. Well, at least they told her first. Yes. I appreciate that. And then something that's going to make you sad. Okay. Sandy Irvin's parents reportedly left their back door unlocked for three years. Just in case. Right? Sorry, my heart just crushed. Yeah. And, Tom King, there's a memorial to Sandy Irvin in Oxford. Oh, yeah, because he went to... uh, Yeah. 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 All right, Emma. Mm -hmm. So that kind of concludes the facts that we knew at the time in 1924. Next, I'm going to talk about the search for knowledge and some of the mythology that's developed around the disappearance of these climbers. Uh, we're going to go roughly in chronological order, which is part of the reason my notes took so long because I had so many sources, but they were all in different orders. So I had to go and be like, okay, where do I put this in the timeline? And it's like, oh, this is about what happened in 1924, but we didn't learn about it until 1975. So I don't want to like spoil it, whatever. So... <laughs> Welcome to my brain. Just so you all know, like, Shannon does the most when it comes to her research, so I'm just impressed that you're able to get as much done as you have, like, every single time that we record a podcast. You're like, so I just finished this last night, and then it's this glorious piece of research. Like, how? (laughs) (laughs) Anxiety. Yep. Um... I don't know, for former gifted kid syndrome, <laughs> something like that. All right. So, in 1933, the British send another expedition back to Everest. So, like, ten-ish years. Yeah, after. almost ten years. Um, so, a, and a climber named Wynne Harris discovers a climbing axe located 250 yards east of the first step and 60 feet below the crest of the Northeast Ridge. And friends at home, I promise I'll post an image that shows and labels the various steps and features. Because again, I recognize this is something that people don't just have a mental image of in their head. 
which is why I gave Emma a book to look at. Which I appreciate. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> and, but I understand that this could be frustrating. I'm a visual learner, so if I were listening to this and I didn't know, I'd be frustrated. So just go and look at the Instagram. By the time this episode comes out, I will have located the photos. <laughs> I have not yet because I was doing research in any... But anyway. All right. Uh, ba, 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 ba. So this climbing axe. It is thought to have landed there as a result of a fall from the ridge as no climber would have chosen that location to leave it intentionally uh, just because it wasn't crazy convenient. It was accessible, but you wouldn't choose to leave it there. Uh, even during a season with lighter snowfall, such as that in 1924, an ice axe is a climber's best friend. It can be used as a walking stick, as security against high winds. You can kind of like chip into the mountain and feel Hold more on. stable. Um, you can even just use it to like lean on while you're gasping for breath. Uh, one of the sources was clear to mention. Um, I hate that image. <laughs> sorry. It's so scary. They're just on a big hike. It's like me in Colorado. You just need to lean against a tree for a second and be like, <gasps> oxygen. Yeah, but you're not able to sunburn the roof of your mouth. I mean, I, I would I, I would hope not. So, with all that in mind, if the axe was set down momentarily, for example, if they were switching out oxygen cylinders, it's unlikely that a climber would have gotten far without realizing that they left it and they would have gone back to retrieve it. This was initially thought to be Mallory's ice axe, but it was later identified as Sandy Irvin's by the three notches that had been carved into the handle because he was known to, to use this method to identify his belongings prior to Everest. So, for example, they had, like, a walking stick from school okay. that he had decided that, like, three these notches three... Three me. Yeah. And then we're going to go, we're going to fast forward to 1960... Uh, this was the year of the first Chinese attempt to climb the mountain from the north side. One climber descended a more on a more direct route than the rest of their team, and he claimed to have seen the body of a Brit, and he identified the fact that this was a British climber by the fact that he was wearing braces, a.k.a. suspenders, Ooh. which were a, an integral part of the uniform of a gentleman in 1924. Wait, so did he not have a coat? So the wind is very intense up on Everest. Oh, so, so braces can... over his coat or something? No, 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 no. Okay. Um, more in that if you if wind can get into your clothing, it will rip through your clothing over time. Oh, I see. So the outer layers oh, were okay. kind of in tatters. Got it. Yeah, because at that point, Fun. it's been like 40, almost 40 years. Oh, okay, that's fair. So. All right. Um, yes. And then we're going to flash forward again to 1975. Chinese climber uh, Wang Hongbao claimed to have observed a body of a, quote, English dead at 8,200 meters, or 27,000 feet, uh, close to the Chinese high, highest camp. The Chinese climber described his find to a Japanese climber when he returned to the mountain in 1979. The next 
day, the Chinese climber died in an avalanche. So his story could not be definitively confirmed. You know, he couldn't take anyone back to where he had seen this body. If the information was correct, the body had to either be Mallory or Irvin, as no other British climbers were missing on this part of Everest at the time. Um, So like I said, because people kind of stay there, people can identify who they are and kind of remember where certain people are if they're able to be identified. So the information about this body that um, Hong Bao had seen in 1975, it was communicated to this Japanese climber through a series of sign language and kind of drawings in the snow because they didn't speak the same language. Yeah. Um, But the Japanese climber was able to gather that the body had its knees drawn up in the fetal position, that it had a hole in its cheek, and that it was dressed in tattered, old-fashioned clothing. Keep in mind that during this time period, British and more generally Western access to Mount Everest was limited for around three decades after China uh, occupied Tibet. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, huge yeah. bet. And it's possible to climb the mountain from the Nepalese side, but we're focusing on yeah. the Tibetan yeah. side. Again, information that I was like, when I first started the research, I was like, talk about the different routes up the mountain. And then as I got further in, I was like, we don't have time for that. <laughs> they can Google it. <laughs> so in 1986, uh, a Western expedition uh, returns to the mountain Um, But they could not get high enough up on the mountain to do any significant searching just due to poor weather. There was too much snow uh, to climb, let alone to be looking for anything in particular. However, it is important to note that Everest historian Tom Hosell was on this expedition, and we'll come back to him later. So just keep him in mind. Okay. All right. In 1995... A climber, whose name is Cheering Dorje Sherpa, claims to see an older body in, quote, army-colored clothing. Um, Also important to note, um, Sherpa is kind of used as an an occupation name for porters on the mountain, but it's also like an ethnic group to the region, and that is why many of them have Sherpa as their last name. Just I kind of love that. Yeah. Uh, so, Shearing Dorje was a cli- was a porter on the 1995 Nihon University expedition that was the first to ascend the complete Northeast Ridge. He, too, like the previous Chinese climber, took a more direct route than the typical path. And again, this is more helpful in a visual format Uh, they talk about it in the documentary but it's kind of like here's where most people go but they chose to go kind of like more directly versus just following the ridge and in him sharing that what he had seen this second sighting pushes hosel the historian to say of the lost brit quote he can't not be there because at this point We have, you know, the... Technically three sightings now, right? Yes. The the, doc, the Nat Geo documentary only talked about two. It only talked about um, 
1975 and 1995. But then one of these other books talked about 1960. Okay. So I felt like it was important to include both. But he's like kind of, you know, in news media, they talk about a second source is like your confirmation source. Yeah. So Tom Hosall's like, he's there. Yeah. There is, it has to be one of them. Alrighty. And then we get to 1999. This expedition is titled the Mallory and Irvin Research Expedition. And its main goal was to locate the missing climber's remains and hopefully the Kodak vest pocket camera that they would have taken to the summit. Perhaps this would finally prove whether or not they had been the first to summit the tallest mountain in the world. During this expedition, an oxygen cylinder that is contemporary to 1924, labeled number nine, is discovered on the ridge during the expedition, lending credence to the notion that Mallory and Irvin chose to follow the crest of the northeastern ridge rather than following their teammates Norton and Somerville's earlier summit attempt. Um, so they chose to follow the ridge all the way up. Their teammates had done kind of a cut around sort of Roundabout. option. The fact that this oxygen cylinder was found on top of the ridge, you know, it, it wouldn't have gotten there any other Without, way. Without, yeah. And that's part of the, the reason that the timelines get a little questionable because if they had changed oxygen cylinders on the way up, it puts them at a certain timeline of, okay, if they changed it at that location, then they would have had to change here. And that would affect how far they could have gone within a certain time. It all feels very much like a high school math problem, um, (laughs) which is why I did not get into all of it. So, speaking of the debate uh, regarding the second step, could Mallory have free climbed it without the assistance of the now established fixed lines and Chinese ladder at the head wall at the top of the step? So now there is a metal ladder that is like, attached to the mountain it's a part of everyone's climb you could free climb it but you have so little energy that you're just going to take the easiest route on the 1999 expedition climber conrad anchor assessed this climb of the headwall and determined that in his opinion it was possible to free climb it he free climbed it and it was so quick that his partner didn't have time to belay him like it was like like he popped right up and he made a point to say, it's not, it, it's a rock wall that's very steep, but it's not a, con- it's not smooth concrete. There are Places features to, to it. Feet. So you could like dig your feet and your hands in to, to free climb it. Mallory's climbing ability has previously been estimated as a 5'8". An anchor judged the headwall climb to be a 5'10". So that's like, okay, it's close, but... Again, depending how much oxygen they had. Yeah. All these factors. But the most significant discovery of this 1999 expedition was that on May 1st, George Mallory's body was discovered on a steep terrace that is part of the Yellow Band, a name given to the portion of the mountain made up of sedimentary sandstone rock. He was face down 
arms thrown wide as if he had tried to stop his descent and cling to the mountain until his last moments. His right leg was completely broken below the knee. Then I have a quote that I was too lazy to type. So I'm going to open the book. I also didn't want to stay up late last night because I was like, I feel like I'm going to have really weird dreams if I keep reading about (laughs) missing dead people on a mountain. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. At some point in the yellow band, they encountered a nearly vertical segment. Perhaps both men were moving down together, the rope between them. Interjection. At this time, especially because there were no fixed ropes because they were the first ones there, uh, it was common practice for climbing partners to be roped together. As Terrifying. Like, you trip, you both fall. Well. I mean, I get it. No, I get it. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. It's just my brain going yeah. through um, all of the imagined horrors. Mallory, as is usually the case with the more experienced climber, was bringing up the rear as Irvin picked his way through the fragmented limestone of the band. Suddenly, a misstep. Mallory loses his footing and, in seconds, is plummeting down the face past Irvin's position. Or, perhaps, Irvin slips and pulls Mallory after him. The extra coils of rope in Mallory's hand unravel, and then, after what seems like an eternity but is only a matter of seconds, there is a sharp jerk. The rope catches on an outcropping. Mallory smashes into the cliff face with his right side and dislocates his right elbow. The rope digs into his left side and the jolt breaks ribs. For a millisecond, Mallory thinks he is saved, but the moment ends in a heartbeat as the shock-loaded rope snaps and he continues falling. Almost immediately, he lands on one foot on a section of steep slope. As the downward force of the fall meets the sudden stop of his body, the tibia and fibia of his right leg snap just above the top of his boot. But he does not stop. The slope is too steep, his momentum already too great, He is sliding into the darkness of the Great North Face, plummeting toward the final drop-off to the central Rungbuk Glacier, thousands of feet below. He is in agony, but he is not dead, and he has not given up. He swings his down-racing body into self-arrest and digs his fingers into the frozen scree, scrambles at each passing rock. But he is sliding so fast, and the ground is so rough that it rips off his gloves. It is as if he is being dragged behind a runaway locomotive and he is trying to break the speeding engine by the sheer strength of his arms and fingers. Just at the point at which he thinks he may be slowing, however, he hits a tilted slab, flies up, and when gravity takes over, hits the slope hard. Slowing now, he slides off another ledge and finally stops. His fingers still claw the slope. He is face down in the rock. His head injury is severe. He is losing consciousness. In his last act, it may not even be conscious. He crosses the good leg over the broken one protectively. And then almost immediately, his agony and his life end. I want to cry. <laughs> That's why I didn't look at you that whole time. I was like, if I'm just crying, I'm going to freak out. Um, that is from Ghosts of Everest, The Search for Mallory and Irvin. It's in the show notes. But I just felt like that... That's, I will say, beautifully written. Right? But, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and again, that's what those people think happened. Yeah. Um, but we'll never know for sure. Um, 
His body, George Mallory's body, was found north of the first step, suggesting that the team had successfully and safely descended from the second step. The location and position of Mallory's body did not fit the 1975 description of the, quote, English dead, either. The body cited in 1975 was said to have been lying on its back and appeared to have been closer to the campsites than where Mallory's body was located. Because remember, in 1975, that body, it was like fetal position. There's a hole in his cheek. Mallory was found face down in the mountain. With arms up, basically. Yeah, like open wide. And I realized in reading this book that I've actually seen the documentary that they were making about the 1991, 1999 expedition. That doesn't surprise me at all. It doesn't, but it's very, it's odd because it feels so long ago and it's so sterile of an environment that it feels sort of academic. Like when you go to a museum and you see a mummy or a bone of whatever, but it's also a man's body who has like family and and yeah it's all very it's all very weird um weird is not the the best word for it but it's bizarre in a well and it, it like as a as a student of wanting to know as much as i can about this mountain it's like oh my gosh like yes look in his pockets what's there like but it's also like that's his grave the whole mountain is a grave like it's all very yeah complex there's there's parts of it that i'm sure i mean i'm sure that these people have to do specifically to be like we are not here to be emotional empath empathic yeah human beings we are here to be as well and you literally you can't um that far up on the mountain like in the documentary, the more recent one that I watched, one of the climbers essentially says, you can't afford to think about anyone else. Yeah. On your if team you, if or you at do, home. You die. Yeah. You, you're like, I will help somebody if I can, but I need to get home too. So his body was identified by a label that was sewn into the neck of his clothing um, that says G. Mallory on it. Oh. And initially... The team that found him, kind of convolutedly, which I think goes to show um, confirmation bias is clearly a thing, his body was found, I don't know if that picture shows it or not, but it was found essentially further down the slope than from where they found that axe that was Irvin's axe. So they were expecting that body to be Sandy Irvin. And so when they saw that label, they were like, well, maybe maybe Sandy Irvin borrowed one of George's shirts. Then they were like... Why would you do that? No. Well, uh, yeah. But... So they were like, oh. I'm not taking off anything if I'm on that mountain. <laughs> right? Well, and that's another thing. You get very smelly. Because you don't I'm shower. sure. Uh, so his snow goggles were found in his pocket. Which suggests... Either a twilight or a dark descent oh, from the mountain. Oh, I see. Okay. Like I was saying earlier, their expedition leader, Norton, had been struck with snow blindness just days earlier. So Mallory would have known better than to remove his snow goggles in the daylight. Yeah. But another source did point out that the, these 
goggles were still a very early design and they, the lower part of them kind of obscured your vision. You know, if you've ever seen somebody who's wearing like readers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, or like bifocals, like they could like misstep. Um, so it's possible that he might have removed them for visibility state, sake. Think kind of thinking like, well, snow blindness is temporary and they had managed to get Norton down. Like they, through a series of fixed lines and kind of like, show, like placing his feet, they got him down the mountain with snow blindness versus if you keep your goggles on, but you can't see where your feet are and you misstep and like you fall off a glacier that, you know, yep. that's not so temporary. Yeah. Also on his person, they discovered scribbled provision lists and oxygen cylinder gauge readings that indicate that Mallory and Irvin potentially made their summit attempt with as many as six spare oxygen canisters. And the reason that they, this was like new information. And again, the whole timeline situation even more. Yeah. Um, but the fact that they, number nine, that cylinder that was discovered on this expedition is listed on the little scribbled notes that they were testing the gauges because they wanted to take as many full canisters Tanks, yeah. as possible. Um and at that point, Camp 6 had already been established from their teammates' previous summit attempts. Therefore, they had more porters available to haul extra oxygen tanks up. Because those mm-hmm. tanks could weigh about 8 pounds each. And it's noted that they used practically, quote, practically no op- oxygen on the journey up to Camp 6, saving as much of the, quote, English air as possible for the summit attempt. Um, cause that's what bottled oxygen was referred to by the Sherpas. They were like, oh, these, the English, need they need air. the English air because <laughs> they, to, you know, to them, they're just like, the, it's, it's I'm air. just breathing and I'm fine. Yeah. Like, what's your problem? Most notably, no camera or oxygen apparatus were found with or near Mallory's body. Experts argue, however, that the absence of the, the vest pocket camera makes sense. Mallory, at this point, is the big name. Irvin would have been the one to snap the picture of the boss at the summit. That makes total sense. Right? Absolutely. Also missing was the photo of his wife, Ruth, that George had promised to leave at the summit. (gasps) And when doing something as simple as removing your gloves is incredibly difficult at high altitude, when and where... Would he have made the effort to remove the photo if not at the summit? Absolutely. Okay, that that gave me chills. That proves it to me. (laughs) Notably, Mallory's body was found close to where the aforementioned historian, Tom Hosell, said it would be. So he's kind of retired from climbing. He went on that 90 yeah. or 86 expedition, but now his job is like Everest historian. And in the documentary uh, that I watched last night, he has an eight foot photograph of the aerial view of Everest pieced together on his wall. Oh my and gosh. this has been like his life's work. Finally, that brings us uh, to the 2019 expedition that's covered in the Lost on Everest. National Geographic documentary, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. There's probably other places you can watch it. 
if you're from other countries or if you don't have Disney Plus, there's probably a way you can do it. There's probably someone you can mooch off of. Probably. Or, like, rent it from YouTube or whatever. Or, yeah, or Hulu or something. So, this documentary is significantly guided by Tom Hosell's theory of events. According to him, in this scenario, the summit and whether or not they made it still remains a question. It doesn't really... His goal is not to determine whether or not they made the summit. It's to find Sandy Irvin's body. So according to him and his theory, the two climbers were returning down the northeastern ridge in a hurry due to poor or declining weather. Mallory falls from the ridge but is caught by the rope between the two climbers. However, Irvin is unable to pull him back up onto the ridge so he cuts him loose. Not like, it's not an open cavern. Like, they're just, it's fine. Mallory is continuing, he's able to continue on this new route, but unfortunately falls again, leading to the fatal leg injury where his body was ultimately found. Irvin, on his way down, he's following the line of least resistance because when you're that tired, that's the easiest thing to do. And Hosel hypothesizes that he shelters from the weather behind a big rock and unfortunately, ultimately freezes to death. And since in the intervening years, scientists have created replica garments of what the 1924 explorers would have been wearing because you see photos of them. And you compare them to modern people, and it's wild. They're up there in, like, their tweed and their Burberry, like, their little aviation helmets. And it's wild. You're like, how did you How would you do survive? Well, ultimately, it was determined that these garments worked just fine in the sun and when there wasn't significant wind. But, however, they would not ultimately help uh, climbers survive under poor weather conditions, such as the snow squall that overtook the upper levels of the mountain on June 8th, 1924. So even if they had been fine up until that point, if the weather turned badly and Sandy Irvin was still out in the open, he wouldn't have lasted very long. Meanwhile, I'm over here getting cold. Not right now, but like in my lifetime, like the only, the, the times when I get cold, there's like, it's 73 degrees in my house and the air is on to cool and I'm underneath my blanket with my long sleeve shirt and fuzzy socks. <laughs> I'm in a movie theater and I packed fuzzy socks. Yep. So on the documentary, the 2019 team, their team climbs, they reach the summit, great, and then on the way back down, Mark Sinit Sinat. Don't know. He goes off the fixed line against the Sherpa's advice. The Sherpas are yelling at him like, no, no, no. But he goes off because they're trying to find Hosel's spot. That's what they've deemed okay. this based on Hosel's analysis. No one else on their team has the energy to follow him. So... We don't have any up-close, like, footage of him because it's not like he had, like, a GoPro. There was, like, the one filmmaker uh, primarily. Um, so you just kind of see him, like, walking along 
Um, and the thing about the yellow band is that it is a different terrain than the rest of the mountain. So it's rock. It's not snow or ice. So if you're wearing crampons, it's like harder. You like kind of can skitter if you don't place your foot correctly. Um, so he makes his way across the yellow band, sometimes dangerously close to the edge, which if you go off the edge, you're, you're gone. You're taking a one-way trip down to a glacier that is very far down. No thanks. Um, it's a long way to travel and die. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he's looking into the rock slots that they had previously observed um, on state-of-the-art drone footage using a fallen Japanese climber as a further landmark. So down at a lower camp, they had examined, um, they'd examined this footage and they had kind of seen this fallen Japanese climber and used him as a point of reference. This photo is from that drone um, footage. It's not talking specifically about the search or anything, but it's the same filmmaker and the same drone. Um, this is a panoramic photo of the mountain. Um, but he was able to work with the drone manufacturers to like turn off some of the safety features so it could it could fall faster and be further away from the controller and stuff. Ultimately, Mark found nothing. Uh, and he he ended up publishing a book about the expedition that was recently released. It's called The Third Pole. And it's currently in my library TBR pile that Emma saw earlier. <laughs> Here is my gripe, Emma. Uh-oh. And I had okay. this feeling, I had this feeling the first time I watched the documentary and last night as well. Okay. My problem is that these people are climbers first and historians second. Because they still chose to go to the summit. And then they were like, oh, we'll look for Hosel's spot on the way down. If your true mission was to find Sandy Irvin's body, why didn't you spend all of your time and energy? You know what I mean? Like, more of you could have been looking. You would have been safer while you were looking because you were less exhausted. But it's this intoxication yes, of Yes, exactly. If, yeah. you could, if it's that, like, little bit more, or it feels like it's that little bit more... Summit fever. The, the why not of it all to be like, oh yeah, I climbed Everest. Oh, did you get to the summit? Well, no, I was actually looking for the body of the one of the first if men. If you are somebody, to climb Everest. <laughs> okay, but first of all, if you've climbed Everest at all, don't be don't be a jerk about it at parties. But that's still really cool. Yeah. And also, if you are someone at a party that hear if you hear about someone talking about climbing Everest and you're like, oh, did you reach the summit? And they say no, and you're like. <laughs> whatever, then you're a jerk and I don't want to be friends with you. I am fascinated. I wouldn't have, I, like, if you <laughs> had just poor, made it to base camp and then booked it, I would have been like, how was it? That like, poor that's person, fascinating. That poor person at a cocktail party, they're going to be, like, held hostage by me in the corner being like, oh my gosh, and then what was it like? Oh my god, like. That's like any time that I find Marcy in a in a party. I, I, I have an acquaintance who I only ever see at certain parties and her and I just will like lock eyes and then just tell ghost stories for the rest of the night and I love it. It's great. <laughs> ghost stories and musical theater stories. It's great. We love it. You'd love her. Um, but yeah, so that's my main gripe with the documentary. 
perhaps in the future more people will be more focused. But I think part of the problem is you have to have a certain level of skill, obviously, to get to that height on the mountain. And at that that takes years of experience, so you're more likely to be a climber. You know, I feel like too. It's probably you, safer for you to be a climber first and a no, historian no, no. second. But, but like, do you know what my brain submitted as an as a relevant parallel example? I like that your brain submits things to you. It's like, hey, what about this? So the movie, the movie Stick It from two thousand and something or another. It's about gymnastics. So instead of finding actors and trying to teach them to be like elite level gymnasts they just took real gymnasts and like taught them how to act yes and they're not good (laughs) you take that back i'm sorry they're great they're they're incredible gymnasts they are that movie is campy and i love it so much it's it's everything my little childhood athletic self i just had a recovered memory of this movie because i know that i saw it but i only ever saw (laughs) you know what i mean yeah I only ever saw it once. <laughs> uh, well, that's a tragedy. I know. Well, it's like Bring It On. Like, I know Bring It On, but I've only ever seen it once, like, forever ago. You are very clearly straight. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> There's no... And how many times did you watch Pride and Prejudice? <laughs> I don't want to talk about how many times I've so seen many. Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> You're like, which edition? All of them? Oh. Okay, the 2005 version is the superior version Hand flex all the way. But Colin Firth coming out of a lake in a white button-up is a beautiful moment. Nick, just know that. Sorry you had to be here for that, you guys. Next time you go to a lake with your wife, Nick, you pack a fluffy pirate shirt. Good luck. He would hate that so Happy anniversary. Anyway. um, So... And again, both times I've watched this documentary, well, not so much the second time because I knew what happened. So I guess just the first time. I spent the whole time, like, hoping that they would find him for the sake of history, but also kind of hoping that they wouldn't because then I could talk about it on the podcast. Because <laughs> if they found him, it wouldn't be a mystery well, anymore. Well, they, yeah, they'd probably find the camera too and then have confirmation. Yeah. So there's that. Would you like to hear my theory? I absolutely would. Great. So, as I previously mentioned, in 2015, there was a massive earthquake. I think, and this earthquake affected not just Mount Everest, but kind of all of Nepal. It was very serious. Um, But I think that the 2015 earthquake and its aftershocks, which were also pretty significant, could have swept Irvin into a crevasse or down the north face to the glacier below. I'm so sorry. The word crevasse. That's what they call it. I know. But it is what on the list of my most like least liked words. Because Nick will say crevice. And I hate it. <laughs> Well, then don't ever listen to an audiobook about Mount Everest, because they say crevasse quite a lot. But I think that that significant seismic event, because I think there, at this point there have been two or three sightings, 
And for him to not be there in 2019. Yeah. I think Something that must have. I don't think we're ever going to find Sandy Irvin. Oh. Or the camera. Just because he is one with the mountain now. Which is kind of poetic in a sense. And some climbers in what, would prefer kind of going back when I was talking about how some people are like, we should get all the bodies off of Everest. Some people are kind of like, if I die up there, I want to stay there. Like the mountain one or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So I just, I don't think we're ever going to, we're, we're never going to truly know. We'll just add it to the list for the angel at the desk. <laughs> Jovany I, I, Ramsey. I guess I can. John Irving. Okay, but here's 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 a really hypothetical question for you because this podcast isn't Not long John enough. Irving. Um, at that point, I guess we wouldn't even have to go to the angel at the desk. Like I could go find Sandy Irving in heaven and be like, "You get this a lot, I'm sure." But like <laughs> the cocktail, please the tell cocktail me, hour in heaven has please, got to be bopping. <laughs> please tell me, like. What happened? Like, did you guys make it? Wait, where's George? George! George! Come here! Come over here! You know, like... I would love not, that. You know, I don't... Yeah, hopefully it's a long, long time until I die, but like... I pray, if for, I get I pray some, that. If I get some guaranteed answers, I'll be like... <laughs> Alright! Alright! And if, All right. if you do go before me, and you do get guaranteed answers... And you do haunt me. I need you to whisper whisper those answers in my ear. Like it was. The <laughs> you're brother. gonna be you're gonna be an old lady in a nursing home, and you're gonna like get out of your shower. It's gonna be like you're gonna look at the mirror. It's gonna be like the brother did it. <laughs> like, and I'm gonna go yes, I knew it. And then they're gonna be like, are you okay? And like you'll be like what? And it'll have like faded, and they just think you're nuts. <laughs> that perfect. that and the fact that I'm definitely going to be quoting Vine when I'm in a nursing home. They're Look just at gonna, all those chickens! I could have dropped my croissant! Breach if I could do! <laughs> just in a bathtub. I'm getting me and me clothes clean! Alright. <laughs> um, we're going to try and end it on a more poetic note than that. Sorry. <laughs> Here's a quote. About these two men, but specifically about this whole generation of climbers. They pioneered routes, established camps at sites still used today, and equaled or beat climbing times considered normal even now, often without supplemental oxygen. And I feel like part of the reason that I love Mount Everest so much is that Especially when you take into account these early, early explorers. It's the same energy to me that I feel like when I... Specifically, I'm thinking about when I was on the Aran Islands in Ireland. And I was on top of a cliff. Just looking out at the ocean. And it's just ocean. Forever. And the fact that people were brave enough... To get on a boat and just go. And to not know. And maybe not come back. Blows my mind. And then I have the audacity to be anxious about, like, making a phone call. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I do. Yeah. And then I have a final little note that will hopefully uplift your sad little heart. Thank you. Uh, So, in 1995, George Mallory II, grandson of the original George Mallory, went on to summit Mount Everest. And he and his father, John, were able to leave a dedicated plaque at base camp to honor George Mallory. That's incredible! I love that. Yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah. And then, friends, as always, they are in the show notes, but highly recommend my three main sources. The National Geographic Lost on Everest documentary from 2020, uh, streaming on Disney+. Plus. A book called Last Climb um, by David Brashears and Audrey Skalked. And Ghosts of Everest, The Search for Mallory and Irvin by Eric Simonson and Larry Johnson. I, I need to go back and read the rest of all these books. I just read the last like two chapters of both of them. Um, but yeah, I hope you all enjoyed. It's been a long time coming, but I finally decided to just go for it. I'm so proud of this you. Episode. I'm so proud of you. Thanks. My theory is Yeti. That's just the, blanket theory. The Yeti adopted Sandy Irvin and like took him <gasps> away. Yeah. Or that it murdered him. No, no, no. That the I like the adoption. The adoption option. The adoption option. <laughs> yes. Ah. Yay! I don't even know what to do. I don't know I'm either. So I'm, just, I'm so proud of you. I've like given you all that I can. I'm I hope so you proud. guys go watch. Go watch the stuff. Somebody just talk about Mount Everest with me. I. I mean, you know this because I sent you a screenshot. But Mount Everest is now on my Bumble profile. Yep. Because one of the prompts that they give you is like, "I'll never s- shut up about." Colon, and then you put your answer. I put Mount Everest. And I think the I think the algorithm noticed. Because there have been two people that popped up that said, like, that they've trekked to Everest Base Camp. <gasps> or, like, one person for, like, two truths and a lie is, like, I've climbed the tallest mountain in the world since, like, two other things. And I was like, well, I, uh, hope, the well, first, I hope the first one's not a lie. <laughs> right? But you could, like, that's a way, that's an initiative, like initiation question of like hi hello um would you like to be on my podcast would you like to just talk to me about everest for about five hours thank you we can build a relationship on this right absolutely right i do appreciate the people who have answered your questionnaire oh god (laughs) we're gonna talk about it i just got really excited because I do want to answer your questionnaire, but I don't want to mess with your numbers. Oh, you can. Haley already submitted. Great. I'm gonna. They asked. They were like, yo, can I, can I submit some answers? And I was like, please do. And Haley got a car. That's awesome. Or got her, got their license. Yes. And then they will have a car in order to come and visit us from Cali. California. California. Um, okay, but. Haley wins. Um, also, this was at 1230 last night when I was stressing about Mount Everest, which, when am I not stressing about Mount Everest, <laughs> honestly? Um, but one of the questions on my Get to Know You dating survey is make up the title to a fake Fallout Boy song. 
And Haley's answer wins. Like, I'm sorry, anyone who fills out my survey. But um, Haley's response was, taking a nap instead is always an option. Which is correct. I, I do not disagree. Which is correct, especially in light of my recent not writing. I was going to do Camp NaNoWriMo, and then I was like, nope. I had to do... So I procrastinated from writing something that I had to, like, I had to craft an email to somebody, but it was like, okay, you have this amount of time to craft this email. And I was like, I don't want to do that just yet. I could write a novel with that kind of procrastination energy that I have right now of not wanting to do that thing. I would much rather finish my novel than write that email. It was like me calling my doctor's office finally today. I finally called my doctor, y'all. <laughs> I have an Because we talked about it on the podcast Yes, we before. did twice. <laughs> I yelled at you in the edit. I know. Wow. It wasn't until you were here to pressure me in person. What can I say? I have the presence of a mountain. And a mom. A mom mountain. Mother goddess Mother of the world. Mother goddess of the world. We brought it together. All right, my friends. We will let you climb out of this expedition because it's been a long one. I gotta unhook before... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> take your care. No one's gonna take gonna... me. No one's gonna take me down the mountain with them. Oh, Emma has trust issues. It's fine. Um, <laughs> if uh, if you enjoyed it, please let us know. Um, rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends, family, and foes. Please and thank you. Yeah. And until next time, remember this podcast doesn't exist. <laughs>